great to be here this morning. Appreciate very much the attendance of you all here today. We've got some visitors in the crowd. We hope that you uh, have enjoyed our services thus far and uh, hope that I have to say something to say that will be beneficial to you. Hope, hope everybody has been enjoying Windfest 2022, uh, Revenge of the Dirt. Um, but despite that, we're in a clean, comfortable building this morning and able to worship God together and I hope that I can contribute to that in some way. Uh, As most of you know, I've been studying in the book of Ephesians, and I've sort of finished up part one, my first series, if you will, in the book of Ephesians. And I thought a little palate cleanser, uh, for lack of a better word, might be in order, because we talked last week about how the first half of Ephesians is strong theology, the foundation of our Christianity, and how the second half, which contains 40-some-odd commands or imperatives, from Paul, it doesn't mean much to us if we don't understand what God has done for us. And we can obey all kinds of commands, but if we don't put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, it's not going to be much use to us. And so this morning, I want to present the gospel to you in a very plain and simple manner. Um, And for many of you, this is truly the first principles. You know, we were talking in our uh, teacher training this last year about when it comes to conclusions and delivering an invitation uh, we all through the years have heard and have, I've been guilty of using myself, very standard, it's what we call canned invitations, where you might say something like, we never know the hearts and minds of those that are present. And one of those is, we haven't spoken much on the first principles today. And I was talking, I believe I was talking to Brother Brent Richburg from Plainview a while back, and he said, you know, I was a teenager before I even knew what the first principles were. Because people always talked about it, we didn't talk about them, and nobody ever said, I'm talking about the first principles today. Well, I'm telling you right now, we're going to talk about the first principles of the gospel. And hopefully by the time I'm done talking, if you've not obeyed the gospel this morning, hopefully you will have all the information you need to make that decision in your life. What is the gospel? Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He said, I'm ready to preach the gospel to those of you who are in Rome. Now, he was writing to Christians, which means that all of our sermons should preach the gospel. I believe that firmly. I try to preach the gospel in every sermon I preach. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power that God uses to save us from our sin. And that's why Paul wasn't ashamed of it. That's why he wanted to preach it everywhere he went and in every letter that he wrote, and it should be incumbent upon us as well as the song we just sang, into our hands the gospel is given. Now, so what is the gospel? What does that mean? You know, you might hear people say, well, you know, this is what happened, and that's the gospel truth, and they mean that to say it's completely true, and certainly the gospel is completely true. We believe that, but the word gospel doesn't mean truth. The gospel means good news, and this is the Greek definition if you're interested at all in this kind of thing. Uh, that word as pronounced euangelion, roughly. I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar, but it translates most of the time as gospel or gospel of Christ, and it simply means good tidings or a reward for good tidings, and it carries with it a connotation of a herald of a king going into the town square and proclaiming good news to the people that he's delivering from the king. And so when you think about it in those terms, it, it makes very much sense that the gospel is what we proclaim to the world. And it is good news. It is good tidings. And so as we consider that this morning, keep that in your mind as the fact that the gospel is good news. Now, Paul talks about the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and probably 
in terms of the first principles or the basics of the gospel, this is probably the best place to go to in terms of what are the facts of the gospel. Now, we've already mentioned we spent Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Paul spends the entire entirety of that really talking about the gospel in very deep and rich and profound terms. When it comes to the truly just the, the basic facts of the gospel, this is it. So he says, I would, not, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, which I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Now notice when Paul says this, he says, you are being saved. And so not only were they initially saved by the gospel, but he, again, he's talking to Christians, and he says, you are still being saved by the gospel. And that's why we should continue to preach the gospel even after we preach to people who have obeyed the gospel. He says, you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So these are the basic facts of the gospel. And when I say facts, because the gospel is something that we continue to learn about, that we continue to uh, unearth treasures that are found therein, but when it comes to the basic facts of what is it that actually saves us, this is it. Paul said, I delivered you as a first importance. This is the most important thing. This is what Christianity hinges upon. Without this, there is no Christianity. There is no relationship with God. There is no forgiveness of sins. It's the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm reminded of what Danny was talking about last week when he was talking about the so-called wisdom of the world and the foolishness of, of the gospel. You know, the world looks at the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus and says, that's foolish. Why is that good news? It may be good news for Jesus. He rose from the dead, but why is that good news for me? What makes the gospel good news? You know, in order to have good news, there has to be bad news for it to offset. If there's something wrong with my car, I feel it jumping around, and I'm afraid maybe the transmission's slipping. I take it to the mechanic, and I'm expecting, yeah, you got to pay thousands of dollars to replace your transmission. But maybe he comes back and says, no, it was just a belt, and you just give me 75 bucks, and I'll fix it. That's good news. What is it that makes the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ good news for humankind? In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says this, What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is it. This is the bad news. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, that means Gentile. Whatever the case might be, Paul had just spent the first three chapters of Romans laying out a charge against humanity. You are all sinners. And it doesn't matter that you were God's chosen people as the Jews and you had the law. You still broke the law and therefore you're a sinner. It doesn't matter that you're a Gentile, you were apart from law, therefore you don't have the law, therefore you're a sinner. You're all under sin. There's no righteous, no, not one. Later on he said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And here's the thing that makes it bad news for you now. You know, in Isaiah chapter 59, 
He talks about our sins separating us from God. Your sins have separated you. It's not the fact that the Lord's hand is so short that he can't reach down. It's not the fact that his ear is heavy that he can't hear you. Your sins have separated you from God. Your iniquities have caused him to hide his face from you. This is all paraphrasing, obviously. Your, your sins have separated you from God. It brings separation. And so in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, Paul lays out the worst news, if you will, the consequences of the bad news. Verse 7, he says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that these people are going to endure? Flaming fire. Jesus is going to come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on who? Those who don't know God and those who do not obey the gospel. Paul is directly tying the gospel and our obedience to the gospel with avoiding eternal punishment. He says in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I don't know about you, but this is not where I want to be when Jesus returns. This is not the place I want to find myself in when faced with eternity. And you know, the interesting thing about this passage is the way it starts. To grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. To bring comfort to you. This is, this is a message of comfort. This is a message of relief. It is for those who know God and that have obeyed the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here. If you know God and you've obeyed the gospel, you don't have to worry about this eternal punishment. You don't have to worry about the flaming fire and the vengeance and the separation, eternal separation from God. If you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and you know God. And so that's the good news. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news. The good news is that the death of Jesus is good news to us. Why? Because he committed no sin. And so therefore, he went to the cross on our behalf, and he suffered for our sin, and he bled and he died for our sin. And in doing so, we now have the opportunity to become his righteousness. You see, Jesus Christ was perfect. And it wasn't just that a man died, it was that a perfect man died. And a perfect man paid the price. He became sin so that we could become his righteousness. And that is the good news of the gospel. That is why the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news for you and I, because you and I benefit from his reward. We become the sons and the daughters of God. We become his children. We become part of the family of God because the gospel gives us that opportunity. So we have an important question before us now then. We've determined that the gospel is God's power for salvation. We've determined that obedience to the gospel is critical to our salvation. And we might ask the question, well, how do I obey the gospel? What does it mean to obey facts? Because we talked about the facts of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And as we continue through the rest of our sermon this morning, I want you to keep those facts in your mind as a framework, as a foundation, if you will, 
because they're very important to what we're going to talk about. How do we obey effect? How do we obey good news? Well, the scriptures are very clear. The answer's found there. And we're going to go, as some of you might expect, to Romans chapter 6, beginning verses 16 through 18. And the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Let's stop there for just a second. Paul says, we're going to be one of two people. We're going to be a slave to something. doesn't matter who we are, we're a slave. Either we're going to be a slave to sin, or we're going to be a slave to righteousness, which comes from obedience. And there's no other type of person in this world. You may think you're free to make your own decisions. You may think you're free to live your life in whatever way that you wish. You may think you're free, but if you're free from righteousness, then you're a slave of sin, pure and simple. And if you're free from sin, then you've become a slave of righteousness. How does that happen? He says in verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become the slaves of righteousness. Here it is. Something changed. Remember, he's writing to Christians and he says, you who were once slaved, you were slaves of sin, something changed. What happened? They became obedient. What did they become obedient to? They became obedient, number one, it was from the heart. Their obedience came from who they are and what they believe. From the heart to the standard of teaching, the King James Version says the form of doctrine, same thing, doctrine means teaching, of which you were committed. Having been set free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. They were set free from sin and became slaves of righteousness when they obeyed something. What did they obey? Well, we've already talked about obedience to the gospel is necessary. And you back up to the beginning of this chapter, Paul is going to show us that's exactly what he's talking about. Verses 1 through 4 of Romans chapter 6. Paul has, up till now, again, we talked about him laying out the charge against humanity, the charge of sin. Beginning in chapter 4, he begins to talk about Jesus Christ. He begins to talk about justification by faith and how that all comes from the grace of God. And he concludes chapter 5 by talking about where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And talking about how great God's grace is and that sin is overcome by the grace of God through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so he's, I think, foreseeing a natural objection to the idea of putting sin behind us. And he's asked him this question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If grace is so great and it's able to cover, if it abounds all much more than sin, why can't I just live my life the way I want to in sin and let the grace of God cover it? Paul's answer to that question is, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so the question is here is, what are you even talking about? What you're saying doesn't make sense. How can you still live in sin and say that I've died to sin? How can we who died to sin? So again, he's writing to Christians. We have died to sin, Paul says. When did that happen? How can we who died to sin live it? Now he's going to explain this. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's telling them that this is when you died to sin. This is when 
you became the servant of righteousness. When you were baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now look at what he's doing here. Look at the words we have circled here. Death, burial, buried, raised. He's tying baptism to the facts of the gospel. He's tying baptism to the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says we were baptized into his death. And that means we were baptized into his burial. And that means we were baptized into his resurrection. We were raised to walk in newness of life. He is very directly tying baptism to the facts of the gospel here, and you cannot deny that. And so he goes on to say in verse 5, we have been, for we have been, let me start again, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I love the way he puts this, united with him. That's united with Jesus. How do we become united with Jesus in his death? How do we become united with Jesus in his resurrection? By being baptized. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's that idea of being enslaved to sin. Coming back to that later in verses 16 and 18. How How did we get to the point where we're no longer a slave of sin? We were baptized into Jesus Christ. And we're baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, the, the great thing about the Word of God, I love this about this passage because this is obviously a, a standby passage, right? Many of us have, have read and studied this passage all of our lives. And I think of the, the song that Adam led this morning about the, the old, old story. And the, the third verse of that song talks about it seems... And this is, again, paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but it seems that those that, are, that, it, that know it best still hunger and thirst after it. Because the more you learn about the gospel and what it means to you, the more you want to tell it and learn it and learn more. But that's the great thing about the Word of God. Paul here is not trying to argue the essential nature of baptism. And Danny's talked about that recently, too. His, what he's trying to do here is to prevent people from having this idea of, I can just live however I want to and let the grace of God cover it. But in that teaching is found the basic principles of baptism and what it means for us. These people were already baptized, and he says, don't you know when you were baptized, this is what was supposed to have happened? And we can show just how important baptism is in, obe- in obedience to the gospel, and no longer a slave of sin. There again are these key words, death, resurrection. He's tying them very closely to the facts of the gospel. So obviously, many Christian denominations in the world will claim that baptism is not essential for salvation. They'll claim simply believing in the facts of the gospel. They say that's having faith. Just believing means I'm saved. And I think a lot of those objections stem from different things, but I think a lot of them stem from false assumptions about what the Bible teaches about baptism and and false assumptions about what we in the church teach about baptism or what maybe assumptions about what we believe baptism actually is. And so I want to spend a few minutes talking about some of those objections. The first one is that they'll say, well, baptism is a work. 
And we're not saved by works. This is probably the most common that you'll run across. Ephesians chapter 2, I guess I can't stay away from Ephesians completely. So we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let's notice some of these words he's using here. Mercy, great love, he loved us, okay? By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we've got a few, few words circled here. Mercy, love, grace, gift. He raised us up with him. That's, again, a, a, a reference back to the facts of the gospel, the resurrection. Not a result of works. And so people will just hang their hat on this passage of Scripture and say, this is it. I'm going to set up camp right here. I'm saved by grace. I'm not saved by works. There's nothing I have to do except believe in Jesus. Now, I could go ahead and argue like, well, that's something you have to do. So that's a work, right? You have to do it. So belief is a work. But without going there, and let's just assume for a minute this is the only passage of Scripture that we have. Could we come to that conclusion? I'll say yes. If this is the only Scripture we have about our salvation, then they'll look at this and say, okay, I'm saved by grace. I don't do anything. This is not my own doing. It's a gift, and it's not a result of works, so I can't boast. So therefore, yeah, I can see that point. I heard a it's not a story. It happened recently to some, somebody very close to me, and somebody was talking about the ideas of Calvinism and this belief-only type thing, and, and he said, you know, you Church of Christ people, you'll love the book of Acts. <laughs> and so he said, I love the book of Romans. And, you know, of course, I wasn't there for this conversation, so I wasn't able to answer on behalf of this person who was being asked, but you know, my response to that would have been, yes, I love the book of Acts, and I also love the book of Romans, and I love the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and First and Second Corinthians, and Galatians, and Ephesians, and Colossians, and so on and so forth. Why do you have to just pin your hopes on one book of the Bible? Why do you got to say, I love the book of Ephesians, and that's where I'm going to set up camp? Because this is not the only passage of Scripture we have in the Bible that deals with our salvation. And in what I believe to be a parallel passage to this, when Paul lays out a little bit different perspective to this. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, he's not teaching something different here. He's merely expounding and elaborating on the same ideas and concepts. Listen to what he says. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. So he says you put off the body of flesh. How? This Spiritual circumcision, the circumcision made without hands, you did that by being buried with him in baptism. And listen to what he says. In which, which means in your baptism, you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Whose work is it? Who's doing the work when you and I get baptized? It's not me. It's God who has already done the work, the great and mighty work of raising his son from the dead and exalting him to his right hand. And it's our faith in that work when we submit ourselves to the waters of baptism that allows us 
to leave behind that body of flesh. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice what he's doing here. He's using the same words, the same phrases as he did in Ephesians chapter 2. And I know that's hard to read over there. He made us alive, made alive, raised us up with him, raised with him. He's talking about exactly the same thing. The only thing that's different is in Colossians 2, he's telling you when and how that happened. It happened when you were buried with him in baptism. Baptism is not a work of man. It's a work of God. It's not a physical cleansing. I was watching, a while back, I was watching a, a denominational preacher give a, a seminar on preaching, as a matter of fact. And he, he actually got to a point where he called out the Church of Christ and said that they're not Christians because they believe in baptismal regeneration. That's a, a buzzword, if you will, among, I guess, Calvinist types, I don't know. That we believe in baptismal regeneration. And you know, somebody might ask you, do you believe in baptismal regeneration? I'm like, is that what this is talking about? Because if that is, then yes, I believe in baptismal regeneration. If it's what I think they're talking about, which is you think that just being dipped in water makes you saved, then no, I don't believe in baptismal regeneration because it's not simply a physical cleansing. We're very fortunate to have our brother Jeffrey here maintain our baptistry, and it's fairly clean water. It's, but, you know, there's, there's no such thing as holy water. You know, I'm not going to go take a drink of it or anything, no offense. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. But, folks, there's no such thing as holy water. It's no more real than vampires. This is not holy water. There's nothing in this water that's going to make you clean. And if simply being dunked in water is what makes us saved, then we can hogtie all of our friends and family that we love and dunk them under the water. That's just not all there is to it. There's more to it than that. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. He's talking about the people who lived in the times of Noah. They were disobedient. They didn't listen to the warnings of Noah. They were, the thoughts of their heart were evil continually. That's why God wanted to destroy the world. What happened? Eight persons were brought safely through water. The same water that destroyed the rest of humanity and all land life on earth, wiped it all away, saved Noah and his family. Why? Because of his faithful obedience? Because God said, Noah, build an ark, and he built the ark. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. All the same words, all the same phrases, grace, all the, all the same things happening there. They were brought safely through water. Now, verse 12. Baptism, which corresponds to this. What does baptism correspond to? It corresponds to the fact that eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's the facts of the gospel again. Folks, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading through all these passages on baptism and I start seeing all these key words like death, burial, and resurrection show up here linked with the word baptism, the odds of coincidence are dropping fast here. How, how much do we want to bury our heads in the sand 
I mean, he literally says, baptism now saves you. I don't know how he can be any plainer. How can he be any clearer? Baptism, which corresponds to eight souls being brought safely through water, now saves you. Is there anything in the water that does it? No, it's not the putting away the dirt or the filth of the flesh. It's an appeal to God for a good cause. It's an act of faith. It's appealing to God saying, I know I can't save myself. Please save me. Having faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is also not a membership in your local congregation. You know, a lot of churches will say, well, you've been saved. You've accepted Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior. And and now, as an outward sign of that, salvation, and to join our congregation, you can be baptized. In Acts chapter 2, verse 40, Scripture says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And the people have asked him what to do to be saved, and he's told them, and he says, you save yourselves from this crooked generation. And how did they do that? So, because he told them to do that, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Their response to Peter saying, save yourselves, was to be baptized. That was their response. And they were added. What were they added to? Were they added to the local congregation there at Jerusalem? Did they have a, a central Jerusalem Church of Christ or, you know, East Side Jerusalem Baptist Church? What were they added to? In verse 46 says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Other translations say the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Baptism doesn't add us to a local congregation. It's not an outward sign of an inward faith. Baptism is the point at which the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our sins, and God adds us to his church. But you know, it's not just baptism. And I think this is an unfortunate side effect. The religious world's insistence that baptism is not essential forces us to emphasize it. Why are you, Church of Christ, so, so crazy about baptism? Because we have to be. Because nobody else is, apparently. So it's a, it's, a, it's a tool of Satan. And unfortunately, a lot of times in the past, I believe that pendulum swing has swung us away from grace and love, where we don't like to talk about grace. Because so many people emphasize grace to the point where you don't have to do anything. And folks, we're saved by the grace of God. I'm telling you right now, Ephesians chapter 2 is true. Every single word of it. We don't deserve salvation. There's nothing we do to earn it. And it's not just about being baptized. Mark chapter 16, verse 15 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Proclaim it. Why? Because it's God's power to salvation. So you go proclaim it to the whole creation. And what is the very next thing Jesus says? Whoever believes and is baptized, will be saved. If we're baptized, but we don't believe in it, number one, why would you even do something like that? But if you don't believe, and when we talk about believe, I'm not simply 
talking about a mental acknowledgement of God. A mental acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm talking about believing in your heart. Like he talked about in Romans 6, about obeying from the heart. Believing, truly knowing that I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do about it. And God made a way for me through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the only way I can take advantage of that is to be buried with him in baptism. If you don't believe that, you will go into the water a dry sinner and come out a wet sinner. Pure and simple. you got to believe. you got to repent of your sin. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized. You know, these people here on this day, they did believe. Peter preached that wonderful sermon to them on the day of Pentecost. And he said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Their response to that was, they were cut to the heart. They believed. Men and brethren, what shall we do, they asked. And this is what Peter told them to do. You repent. You make a change in your life. And you be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. You know, a lot of people will look at this. I, I heard, in fact, one of the same guys I was talking about earlier that was talking about baptismal regeneration. He quoted this verse, and he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness or because you have been forgiven. That's literally what he said. You be baptized because you have been forgiven already. And so do we repent because we've already been forgiven? If we've been forgiven, what do we have to repent for? No, he says, you repent and you be baptized in order that your sins will be forgiven. That's what he's saying there. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God will call to himself hasn't changed in 2,000 years. For the people there in Jerusalem on that day, all the way down the stream of time to right now, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And we have to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts chapter 8 Verse 36, now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? To Philip the evangelist has been talking to this man. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. He doesn't understand what he's reading. And the Bible says that Philip starts at the same scripture and preaches unto him Jesus. And this is what follows. After preaching Jesus to this Ethiopian man, what is his response? Hey, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? How did he get there? How did he get to the point where he's talking about Jesus and all of a sudden the eunuch says, hey, I want to be baptized. How did he get there? Because Philip preached the gospel to him and he told him, you have to be baptized. We don't have that recorded, but that's what he had to say. How else would he get there? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said with his mouth, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and he baptized him. That's weird. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why would we not proclaim it? As the song we sang this morning, how can I keep from singing his praise? Why would we not 
Say it to the world. I believe that Jesus is. Why would we not stand up for the truth of the gospel and say, I believe and I want this. I want Jesus to save me from my sin. I want to repent of my sins. Why would we not stand up and say it? Why would we not be willing to confess Jesus Christ as our Savior? If we don't do that, he won't confess us. Facts of the gospel couldn't be any plainer. God's plan of salvation is laid out in Scripture that we've just, by the way, barely scratched the surface today. Couldn't be any simpler. No plan of humankind could ever equal the eternal plan and purposes of an all-powerful, all-knowing God. I want you to consider this question that the Apostle Peter asks. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If you haven't obeyed the gospel this morning, if you haven't been baptized into Jesus Christ and been united with him in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection, what will be your outcome? We've already read what that outcome is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When the Lord Jesus returns with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that do not know God and that do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make the choice today, right now. What hinders you? What is keeping you from being baptized? You know, we talked about repentance earlier. If you're waiting to be, to be in a better place, spiritually so-called, if you're waiting to get things figured out, if you're waiting to be a better person, it's not going to happen. You can't be a better person without Jesus. Whatever sin is in your life right now, you can't do anything with that other than let Jesus pay the price. All you can do is come to him in submission. And all you can do is let him pay the price for your sins. And then follow him. Please make that choice today if you have not. The church is ready to assist you. Have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.